As we come to the Gospel of Mark this morning, we're picking it up where we left off last week with Jesus and the disciples having just crossed over the Sea of Galilee. And you might remember that even if you weren't with us this last week. You may be familiar with the story of how Jesus and the disciples in crossing the Sea of Galilee, a great storm came upon the the lake and they, they were under great peril of the boat being filled with water and capsizing and great danger. And Jesus calmed the stormy sea and the wind and the waves, and he he simply rebuked them, and they stopped. Well, now in chapter 5, they come to the destination. I mean, they weren't going in the boat just for a pleasure cruise. They were on their way to somewhere. And, And Jesus had a very specific appointment. The disciples didn't know about it. And uh, the man that Jesus had an appointment with didn't know about it, but Jesus knew about it. And that's why he came in Mark chapter 5, verse 1, where we read, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling place among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with chains and shackles, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. There's been some good movies made of the life of Jesus, but none of them are as good as the movie that goes on in my head when I read a passage like this. You see Jesus going across the Sea of Galilee and getting off of the boat. And he's not in the Jewish part of the Sea of Galilee anymore. No, the country of the Gatherings, this was Gentile country. And Jesus had one specific appointment with one specific man to to do some ministry here. As he gets off the boat and meets with this man, he gets and the man runs at him. Just absolutely runs, and the man comes. And as you see it there, verse 2, he had come out of the boat immediately. There met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. This man was was tormented. It's the most detailed description we have of a demon-possessed man in the entire Bible. It's the classic profile of demon possession. We know from the Gospel of Luke that this man had been demon-possessed for a long time. He lived like a subhuman, a wild animal, wearing no clothes, living among the decaying and the dead, out there in the rocky tombs carved into caves in the, in the sides of the hills. He had supernatural strength, breaking shackles and chains. He was tormented and self-destructive, cutting himself with sharp stones. He had uncontrollable behavior. Nobody could tame him. This was a man deeply and, and severely afflicted by demonic Possession. Now you can be sure that he didn't start out this way. At one time, this man lived among other people in the village. But his own wild, irrational behavior convinced the villagers that he was demon-possessed or at least insane. He had to be controlled. He, he had to be uh, kept from being a danger to himself or to others. And so they put those shackles on him and they put chains on him. Well, this will control him. This will keep him under control. But it didn't. He broke him. Then he went out and kept wrecking his destruction anywhere he could go. So finally, they they drove him out of the town. They drove him out to the village cemetery. He lived like a madman among the tombs. And because he couldn't hurt anybody else, he hurt the only person he could, and that was himself. Cutting himself, mutilating himself. 
And you may know what it's like to be attacked by the devil or by demons. Sometimes the attack comes in, in subtle ways. Sometimes it comes just kind of from the amplification of, of normal irritations that happen in life. You know, sometimes you feel, I feel in some ways, you know, before service today, we had a little bit of that. Some of the staff and I, we were scurrying around to do things, and things go from one problem to another. And, and it's not so much, I think, necessarily the devil creates problems. Problems come and go, right? Oh, but he has a subtle way of sort of amplifying the sense of irritation and annoyance we might have with everyday difficulties and just getting us in the flesh and setting us on edge. Sometimes attack comes that way. Sometimes it comes through just plain old temptation, right? The devil comes and tries to solicit us to evil, and he knows that our own flesh desires evil, and so he knows how to go in there and take something that will appeal to our fleshly nature and how to package a temptation in the right way, and sometimes uh, an attack from demons comes that way. Sometimes it comes sort of like a, a fog that descends upon us and gives us a sense of discouragement or, 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 or desperation. Or, or it's almost a, a morbid feeling of attack and worthlessness. I get that feeling sometimes, sometimes in the strangest place. Sometimes, just occasionally, I'll get it right here on a Sunday morning before it's time to preach. I'll be sitting there in the front row of worship and it's hard to describe the sense of, of desperation and emptiness and worthlessness. It's like a fog that descends upon you. And, and, and everything that you can think of that's bad or negative of yourself, you, you think about. Then every unkind word or every criticism or every harsh judgment that's ever been leveled against you, it echoes in your mind. And you just feel worthless. And it's not the good kind of worthlessness that a person might feel before God, of just being small in the presence of a great God. No, it goes far beyond that. And sometimes on a Sunday morning, that fog will almost settle upon me, and I'll be sitting there, and you know what I'm doing there. You know, everybody else is worshiping God, and I'm in the midst of this. And there, and I'm, I'm writing my resignation letter there in my head during the worship time. It's like, oh, Lord, I can't do this, you know. I'm so unworthy, and you know how unworthy I am, Lord, and I'm unworthy to stand before these people, and what do I have to give them, God? And, and Lord, you know where I'm at. There's just such a sense of depression and, 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 and darkness that comes over you. But you know, as so often is the case, and I find this to be oftentimes the matter, Satan will overplay his hand. You ever notice that the Lord lets them overplay it? And so, you know, that, that, that attack, that fog will come down upon me, and then I'll think, well, this is it. You know, I mean, after this, I, I got my resignation letter worked out in my head. This is the last time I'm going to be speaking to these people. And, and, you know, that makes me sad all over again. You know, I love them. Here I am. I don't want to do this. And, and I'm thinking, well, you know, if this is going to be the last time, then, let, then let's make it really good. And let's at least go out, you know, really preaching the best sermon I possibly could. You know, and then the, the focus kind of shifts. Then my eyes are off myself, right? And then I'm thinking, well, okay, what am I going to do? And, and when I get up on those few Sunday mornings that it's like that, you know, I stand behind. and It's not like I usually am or I just can't wait to get at it. It's like, oh, boy, you know, but then you get going and you get started. And before long, God has something good to give his people through the word. So attack from Satan or demons can come in many different ways. 
But this is something more. What this man experienced in Mark chapter 5 was something more than that kind of attack that I've been speaking to you about. This was a case where this man's personality, his will, was put beneath and below the power of demonic spirits. You know, the Bible makes a promise to every believer. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a promise made to every Christian. You know, a Christian can't be demon-possessed in the sense that this man was. It just can't happen because Jesus Christ lives in you. You are his purchased possession, and, and he's not renting you out for the inhabitation of demons. Oh, they can harass you. They can attack you. They can trouble you. You need to stand fast against demonic There's times when you've got to resist the devil and see him flee. But this man was in a place where he couldn't rescue himself. He needed somebody to come from the outside and do it. And that's why Jesus was there. Jesus came and confronted this man. And if you see what happens here, look, look at it here. Verse 6. But when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment you. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Do you get the flow here? First, Jesus said, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus probably said that when he was getting out of the boat. He saw the man. He could read the situation. He knew what he was there for. And he just called out. He said, come out of the man, unclean spirit. And did you see what the demon replied in verse 7? He said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? At first glance, when we read that, we almost think that the demon is like preaching a little sermon about Jesus. Let me tell you, Jesus, he's, he's, the, he's the son of most high God, a very high title. And, of course, it's all theologically true, isn't it? The demon had a lot of theological facts correct about Jesus, but he wasn't surrendered to Jesus. But when we understand this in the background of the thinking of Jesus' day, it sheds a whole new light on this. You need to understand that Jesus was not the only one who did what we might call exorcisms in the ancient world. There was a whole Jewish formula, a whole uh, idea of how you did these things in the ancient world. Now, Jesus didn't follow the formulas people had, but people in that day knew that people were demon-possessed, and they also felt that they knew how to cure people from demon possession, and they had this whole elaborate process that they went through. And let me tell you something, the process was based almost entirely on superstition. If any of you remember that movie, The Exorcist, when the priest goes up to the room where the afflicted girl is, he has a whole checklist of things that he does, right? It's almost like he takes out the cheat sheet and there's a flow chart there. Well, first you apply holy water and if that doesn't work, you get out the crucifix. And if that doesn't work, you do this. You know, it's like this whole flow chart. Well, they had the same flow chart back in Jesus' day. They thought, well, the, the, the first thing that you need to do in spiritual warfare is the real key to it is having the name of your spiritual opponent. In their minds, if you had the name of your spiritual opponent, you had power over them and you could cast them out. In light of that, do you see what the demon's doing in verse 7? He's trying to exercise authority over Jesus by saying his name. What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I would almost promise you that the onlookers, Jesus' disciples, and if there was anybody else there, when the demon said that, they all went, oh, that was a, whoa, Jesus. He knows your name. 
Because according to the superstitions about spiritual warfare in that day, boy, that was a good shot against Jesus. It was like artillery fire in this spiritual battle. He knows your name, Jesus. He has a power over you. How do you think Jesus felt about that? Do you think he was frightened? You think, oh, that's a, that's a good one. No, it didn't matter to Jesus at all. Not one bit. Matter of fact, notice this. He, verse 7, he cried out with a loud voice and said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Now what he meant was, he meant, don't torment me by casting me out of this man. I find it interesting that the demon wanted to be in the man and he would consider it torment. He would consider it punishment to be cast out. And we sort of scratch our heads in a way when we think of it. What possibly could a demon want in inhabiting us? I mean, we look at ourselves in the mirror and we go, come on, look. I mean, what's us? It's just us. What possible benefit is there to that? Well, friends, the, the whole idea and why demons like to possess people or long to It's the same reason why a vandal wants a spray can or a violent man wants a gun. To a demon, a human body is a weapon that they can use in their attack against God. And in the same way, demons also attack men because they hate the image of God in men. And so they attack men by debasing men and making them grotesque, just like this man. He's not more human because he's demon-possessed. He's less human. He's further from the image of God. And it's as a a graffiti artist is spraying over a beautiful statue. And the statue's still there, but it's covered over by all this graffiti, by all this vandalism. That's what the demon's doing inside of this man, making him appear subhuman. It's a vicious attack against the man. So he says, I want to stay here. Don't torment me by casting it out, casting me out, the the demon's thinking. Look at what Jesus does, verse 9. Then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, why did Jesus ask for a name? Friends, I do not believe that Jesus was playing into the ancient superstition that you had to have the demon's name to cast him out. This is the only occasion in all of the gospels where Jesus is interested at all in asking the name of a demon. At all. Jesus did not need to know the name of a demon to cast it out. No. Matter of fact, I think the response of the demon plays this out. I propose to you that the demon didn't tell Jesus his name at all. Legion isn't a name. If it's true, and it seems it is definitely true from the scriptures itself, that this man was inhabited by many demons, it's not like they all had the same name. Instead of giving Jesus a name, so to speak, what he does is he gives him a title for all of the demons, and he's trying to intimidate Jesus. What the demon is cleverly doing is saying to Jesus, I won't give you my name, and allow me to intimidate you by telling you how many of us there are in here. By the way, a Roman legion numbered 6,000 men. I don't think there were 6,000 demons within the man. I think that the devil's a liar, and what he's trying to do is intimidate Jesus. Now, it's obvious that there were many demons in the man, but it doesn't mean that there were necessarily 6,000 of them. You see, again, from the account as a whole, we see that Jesus was not playing into the ancient superstition about knowing a demon's name. When they replied, legion... They were just trying to tell Jesus, there's a lot of us. We're organized, we're unified, we're ready to fight, we're mighty, just like a Roman legion. 
Friends, if it was important for Jesus to know their names, he would have demanded it. He would have said, okay, I want every one of you demons in there. Give me your name, rank, and serial number right now. You're coming out, and I need your name to get you out. But Jesus didn't play into their superstitions because his power was greater than those superstitions. Now, again, I think the onlurkers at this whole spiritual drama were probably very impressed with the demon strategy here. First of all, they fired a volley against Jesus by declaring his name, right? Then they very cleverly avoided giving any particular names to Jesus. And then finally, they gave a little scare tactic. There's a lot of us, we're mighty. And everybody's thinking, ah, Jesus, this is going to be a tough one for you, right? No, not at all. Wasn't tough for Jesus one bit. He didn't buy into the ancient superstitions, but he easily cast the unclean spirits out of the afflicted man. My friends, I think it's important for us to emphasize this because it's easy today for Christians to get caught up in superstitions about demons and the spiritual realm. You know, over the past several years, there's been a lot of books, a lot of novels about spiritual warfare and focusing on those things. And I think they're fine. It's wonderful if you take them for what they are. And that is novels. You see, there's one authoritative source of knowledge about the spiritual realm, and that's the Bible. And if somebody writes a novel and embellishes and, and, and creates different scenarios and goes on and goes past a bit, that's fine if you take it for what it is, a story. But friends, sometimes people take those stories and they start thinking that it's biblically true. And so some people act as if demonic trouble is spread like cooties. Now think of it. Think of all the things that you come into contact with every day that might have been touched by a demon-possessed person. After service today, you go out to lunch. You sit down at the restaurant and they put a plate in front of you. Well, you don't know who ate at that plate before you, do you? Maybe a demon-possessed person had breakfast on that same plate that you're having lunch on right now. And maybe they didn't put that special uh, anti-demon rinse in the dishwasher there. (laughs) Friends, demonic spirits are not spread by cooties. And to think they are is superstitious. You see, the demonic trouble with an object is found in the content of the object. Now, if you have an occultic book at home, I think you should get rid of it. Not because it has cooties, but because the content of that book is spiritually damaging. And the content of that book is something to get rid of. But friends, the demonic trouble is found with the content, not with the object itself. And we should never be caught up in foolish and counterproductive superstitions about spiritual warfare. Something else I find very interesting about this. Look at verse 10. It says, And he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. You see, Luke chapter 8 tells us that the demons also begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. These demons did not want to become inactive. They didn't want to be put on the disabled list. Satan hates to be inactive. He wants to be busy. They consider it torment. They consider it a punishment to be inactive. And so here, the 
The demons say, no, let us do our work. Don't make us inactive. We want to keep going on. And so they go on and ask. Look at it here, verse 11. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains, and all the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. Now this seems strange to us too. Why would the demons want to enter the swine? Because demonic spirits are destructive, and they hate to be idle. They don't like to loaf. And so, friends, any mischief they can do, they'll do. And they'd rather do something small than sit out of the game. And so if they can destroy pigs, they'll destroy pigs. But I want you to notice something, that the demons can't even afflict the pigs without the permission of God. Jesus is in control here, right? These demonic spirits just can't go out and do whatever they want to do. Jesus is in control here. Friends, Jesus knows what's going on in your life and If you ever feel that you're in a time of great attack, know that Jesus knows what you're going through and he's ready to deliver you from it, but he's allowed it. He's allowed it so that you can turn to him and see his power at work in your life. Now notice this, they all want to go into the swine. I notice something else here. It says here in verse 10 that they begged him earnestly and then in verse 12 they begged him again. You know what that is? That's prayer, isn't it? Right? They're asking Jesus. I find it fascinating here that these demons, they had theological truth about Jesus, didn't they? Son of the Most High God. Number two, they prayed, but they weren't surrendered to God. You can know a lot of theological facts. You can even pray, but if you're not surrendered to God, well, you're in the same boat that these demons are. And so here they are, they're saying this, and Jesus grants it. Look at it here, verse 13. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now we're scratching our heads again, right? Jesus, why did you allow this? Why didn't Jesus just put these unclean spirits out of commission? Well, I have to say I believe it's because that the time of the total demonstration of his authority over demons had not yet come. It would come at the cross. You know, one of my favorite passages regarding this subject is in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, where it says that in light of the cross, Jesus disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. At the cross, Jesus disarmed demons and their attacks against believers, and he made a public spectacle of their defeat, and he triumphed over them in his work on the cross, and that work had not yet been finished, so Jesus doesn't put them out of commission. He says, go ahead, go into the, the swine, and they did. Why, Jesus? Why did you allow it? Well, because he wanted everybody to know what the true intention of those demons was. And that was to kill and to destroy. Now, pigs aren't made in the image of God. They can't resist. There's no inherent resistance to the work of Satan in there. So they just uh, responded to the destructive impulse that the demonic spirits put in there and they destroyed themselves. Friends, that's what they wanted to do with that man all along. And that's where they would have led him eventually. And it's because men are made in the image of God. They can't have the same way in us as they, they had in those pigs, but their intention is just the same, to completely destroy. And that was made evident when those pigs ran off the cliff and into the sea. I have to say, too, and explain one other thing. Some people think that this was pretty unfair. They say, wait a minute. Uh, wasn't this unfair to the owner of the pigs? 
Jesus, you're destroying their, their property here. What's going on with that? Well, friends, I want you to notice that, 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 that here we learn how, how small earthly riches really are, how little God values them. And we also know that God is just. Who knows how the man who owned that herd of pigs got them? Maybe it was through theft. Maybe it was through sin. Maybe it was through idolatry. Whatever reason, God was completely just, and it was in his justice that he did these things. Friends, here we go. You can just see it in your mind, can't you? The pigs running off the cliff, perishing into the sea, which, of course, is the first case of deviled ham in the Scriptures. Well, the response is about the same as first service. That's, That's coming out of my notes. It really is. Now look at the reaction of people starting here at verse 14. Now those who fled the, fed the swine fled. And they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. And then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. They were afraid when they saw the man set free. They were more afraid of a free man than a possessed man. When they saw him in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus, they were afraid. Friends, part of their fear was found in the fact that their superstitions had been shattered and they didn't know what to make of it. Jesus didn't follow the flow chart. He didn't need the name of the demon or the demons that inhabited the man. He just displayed his authority. And by all their superstitions, the the demons had the upper hand over Jesus. But Jesus clearly had the upper hand over them. And so he shattered it all. And what do we make of this? They have a hard time accepting it. This makes us afraid. What's going on here? So what do they do in the midst of all this? Did you read that? It's verse 17. It's shocking. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. They didn't seem to mind to have a demon-possessed, tormented man in their midst. They could live with that. But having a Savior of all authority and power, well, please leave, Jesus. That's a prayer, isn't it? Look at it there in verse 17. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. That's prayer. Jesus, please leave. I'll tell you, I find this remarkable. Jesus did it. Friends, Sometimes that's the prayer people pray. Very rarely do they pray it with their lips. Jesus, get away from me. Oftentimes people pray it with their hearts. Or maybe they pray it like this. Jesus, not so close. You're kind of touching on a sensitive area there. Please, not so close, Jesus. Can you back away a few steps, please? You're invading my personal space, Jesus. And Jesus says, that's my personal space. But if you want me to back away, Jesus will often honor that request. Look at the reaction here, verse 18. When he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis and all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. The man who was demon-possessed, he had such a great heart, he just wanted to be with Jesus. And isn't this a beautiful display of the fact that this man's heart was really changed? 
I mean, he just went, well, thanks, Jesus. I'm glad you set me free, and I'm going to go my way. No, he loved Jesus, and he wanted to be with him. By the way, that's the key. It's no use for a person to be freed from demonic possession unless they're willing to turn their heart towards Jesus in this way. Because if they don't, Jesus said, then it's worse. And those demons who left will bring back more with them in the second place, and the man will be worse than the first. But this man was in the right place. He had a change of heart. He just wanted to be there with Jesus. And so now he had a new name. Did you see his name? Verse 18. He who had been demon-possessed. That's the only name we have for the guy here. Verse 15 calls him he who had been demon-possessed. Verse 16 calls him he who had been demon-possessed. Verse 19, or verse 18, I should say, calls him that. Isn't that a beautiful name? A striking name. The one who used to be demon-possessed. He goes to a party. They write out the name tag. Hello. And that's what he writes on it. The one who used to be demon-possessed. And people come up, he walks down the street, and that's what they say. Hey, there goes the one who used to be demon-possessed. And really, you might think, well, that's a bad thing. It points back to something bad. No, it points back to what he used to be, and everybody can see now that he's not that. You know, you could make up name tags in our own church, right? The one who used to be an alcoholic, but Jesus set him free. The one who used to be a drug addict, but Jesus set him free. The one who used to be caught up in pride and self-centeredness, but Jesus set him free. The one who used to be filled with greed and covetousness, but Jesus set him free. Isn't that glorious? To, to see what a person has been and what Jesus made them, and, and we've got a room full of them right now. I know, it doesn't look like it. You look all around, and everybody looks so good, you know, so just the good kind of people. If you only knew the kind of people that are all around you, you'd be a little more nervous right now. <laughs> if you knew what God has delivered these people from, it's probably good that you don't know. And that way, you just, you just see what the Lord's made them now instead of what they used to be. But you know, you know yourself, don't you? All the people around you, it's the same thing. Friends, hear this man. He calls out to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I just want to follow you. I just want to be with you. And look at it there, verse 18. He, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. How could Jesus refuse such a request? He does. Jesus says, no. I want you to go and to witness for me in these cities. At verse 20, it says, in the Decapolis. That was a set of, of ten Gentile cities scattered all around there. And he says, I want you to go to these Gentile cities, and I want you to proclaim my name there. Jesus wasn't sent to the Gentile cities, but this man would be Jesus' representative there. And he said, you can do more work for my kingdom there than following me. I think it's really marvelous. Marvelous that Jesus would say that for, for two reasons. First of all, it's because that's where it shows where the man was, was more desperately needed. But secondly, I think Jesus would also curing the man of any superstitions. I think perhaps the man wanted to stay close to Jesus because he thought, well, you know, Jesus set me free from these. I've got to stay close to Jesus or the demons will come back. You know, it's like as if a doctor, uh, you know, cured a man of cancer and, and the guy just wanted to stay close to the doctor all the time because the cancer might come back if I, if I don't stay close to the doctor. And Jesus is trying to tell the man, no, you're healed. They're not coming back. You're in love with me now. There's a difference in your life. These demons are not coming back because I fill your life instead of these demons. And where I am, the demons aren't going to be there. And so the man didn't have to be bound by that superstition. He didn't need the physical presence of Jesus with them there to be a protection. That would have been superstitious to think that way. No, no, he could have the spiritual presence of Jesus, and that was enough. All right, two last things here. First, 
First of all, isn't it amazing that we have three prayers in this section? The first prayer was the prayer of the demons, right? They begged him to go into the swine. And what did Jesus say to that prayer? Yes. Then the second prayer we have is the prayer of the, the people from the city. Jesus, get out of here. And, and what did Jesus say? Yes. And then we have the third prayer, the prayer of a man who's now a godly man. He says, Jesus, just let me be with you. And Jesus says, no. Isn't that mind-blowing? The demons make requests, and Jesus says yes. The, 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 the people there in the city, they make an evil request, and Jesus says yes. And this man makes a request out of every good intention of his heart, and Jesus says no. Friends, you know, God knows things that we don't. And sometimes when that answer to prayer is no, don't think it's because God doesn't love you. It's because he does love you, and he knows what's best for you, and he knows what's best for his kingdom. Don't let it upset your mind. God has a way of working things out. God has things to tie together, and so you don't have to be upset about it. He knows what he's doing. Finally, you see what the man's mission was? Jesus told him, verse 19, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had compassion on you. And what did the man do? Verse 20, And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Friends, that's a sermon every one of us should be able to preach. What has Jesus done for you? How has he changed your life? What has he done in your life that you can tell others about and say, look, this is what Jesus has done for me. That's a sermon that every one of us can preach. It shows us something special. It shows us that Jesus went out of his way to touch this one life. One life. You know, if you're the only one here this morning who's spiritually needy, let's say everybody else has it completely together. You're the only one here who's a mess. Jesus is here just for you. One is enough for him. On the other hand, it also shows us that no one is beyond hope. A person could walk into these doors and be possessed by twice as many demons as the person who was filled with these demons who called themselves legion. wouldn't matter. The power of Jesus is greater than those demonic spirits. And friends, if you're born again by the Spirit of God and Jesus dwells in you, you're not possessed by a demon, but you may be harassed, you may be attacked. And friends, the power of Jesus is greater than that. Now, I know it seems dark sometimes with that attack that comes upon you, but the power of Jesus is greater. Nobody is beyond hope. Nobody is beyond the power of Jesus. So friends, let's take courage in that. And so we look at our lives and say, Lord, am I shackled? Am I bound? Am I hindered in some way? by some demonic lie, by some demonic intimidation. Maybe you're here this morning and you you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ and there's ways that that demons operate in your life and you're terrified that you can be set free this morning. The power of Jesus is here to do it. So right now you just need to come to the Lord and bow before him in the same way that this this man did in Mark chapter 5 and he can set you free the same way. Let's pray and ask God to do it right now. Father, We're so grateful for the triumph that Jesus has over all the powers of darkness. So Lord, first, I pray for anybody here who has not surrendered their life to Jesus. Lord, we don't want to be in the place where we know truth about Jesus, even where we pray, but we haven't surrendered our life. Lord, if anybody here is in that place, I pray that you persuade them right now to make a decision for Jesus Christ in the secret place of their heart. 
And Lord, if they're harassed or, or, or possessed in any way, Lord, then set people free. Lord, I pray for those who have given their lives to Christ and maybe, maybe, Lord, they find some kind of attack or intimidation tactic going on in their life. Lord, would you free them from that as well? Helping them to know the surpassing triumph of Jesus Christ. Knowing, Lord, that the power of Jesus is, is, is stronger than any kind of demonic attack that can come against us. Shine forth your light, your truth, your power in our lives, and do it in Jesus' name. Amen.